Greetings, family, and welcome to The Journey Continues, the Cities United podcast. My name is Anthony Smith, and I'll be your host each month as we take this journey together to reimagine public safety. Cities United is a national network that supports mayors, community leaders, and young leaders from all across the country who are committed to creating safe, healthy, and hopeful communities for young Black men and boys and their families. On each episode, you will hear from key stakeholders from throughout our network who will help us examine the issues that impact young Black men and boys' lives, while also helping us identify key solutions and best practices that will help us reimagine public safety and truly create spaces that are safe, healthy, and hopeful for all. Excited about this month's podcast, get to have a conversation with three amazing folks from all across the country who serve as their city leads and they're the folks who are leading their work on the ground. First, we will hear from Sasha Cotton, who's the Director for Violence Prevention in Minneapolis. Next, we will have a conversation with Jonathan McMillan, who's in a new role in Denver, serving as their Violence Prevention Coordinator. And then we'll lastly, we will talk to Monique Williams, who is serving as a Director for Safe and Healthy Neighborhoods in Louisville, Kentucky. All three folks are doing an amazing job uh, trying to make sure that our young folks are safe, healthy, and hopeful. Thank you for tuning in and please enjoy the conversations. Well, thank you, Director Sasha Cotton, for joining the podcast today. Uh, it's really good to have a conversation with folks who work inside of city governments who are doing the work to keep our community safe, healthy, and hopeful. Uh, first, can you just tell us a little, about, a little bit about who you are and what you do? Yeah, Anthony, thanks for the invitation. It's always good to be with you and the Cities United family. It always feels uh, like home. So thank you for that. Uh, I am, I'm Sasha Cotton, the director of the Minneapolis Office of Violence Prevention, which is housed in the Minneapolis Health Department, where we look at a public health lens to addressing violence in communities. On a more personal level, uh, I am a Black woman, a Latina woman, a mother, a grandmother, and I am from the great state of Minnesota, born and raised, third generation. Um, so I've got deep roots here. And I think that sometimes that is lost from a national perspective. Uh, black and brown folks have been in Minnesota for a long time. So this is my home um, and addressing the public safety crisis that we're experiencing is uh, personal and professional for me. Yeah, yeah, thank you for that. And thank you for uh, reminding folks the black folks are everywhere, right? It's not just that we're in certain places, that we are everywhere and we've been the fabric of these communities for a long time. Uh, and that our issues are not just in Chicago, New York and California, but they actually are across the country. Even in the Midwest, when you guys get to 30 below zero, if not COVID. Negative 60, it was negative 60 a few weeks ago. <laughs> we well, can get to negative 60, we still hang tight and we still are, are, are there. Uh, so how did you end up in your current role? How, what, what led you to this kind of work and in, 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 in the current role that you're in? You know, I have been in public safety, violence prevention. Um, we didn't call it violence prevention then, but in, in sort of this public safety from a community lens for all of my career. I, um, I started school with a very prescriptive direction of like, I'm gonna be a cop and then a probation officer and then I'm gonna go to law school and that's gonna be my trajectory. And I did the first two things. Um, you know, I went, to, I got a law enforcement degree. I got a criminal justice degree. I did not ever become an officer, but did work in probation. Um, but realized very quickly that the community was missing at the table and um, have worked in domestic violence services as well. Spent about a decade of my career working uh, both between our state coalition and a national institute focused on domestic violence in the Black community called IDVAC, um, and really have seen the intersectionality in Black and Brown communities around community violence and domestic violence. And so um, came to the city really um, at a time where I needed change. I was working federally, working in a bunch of cities, but was really feeling the draw to come and work closer to home. Um, and have been with the city for almost eight years. I started as their youth violence prevention coordinator, really leading the work of the Blueprint for Action to Prevent Youth Violence, which people are familiar with. Um, you know, one of the first violence prevention plans to hit this, you know, hit the stage back in the, the early 2000s, mid to early 2000s. And so um, came to the city to lead that work and have since been building out uh, violence prevention work uh, under the auspices of the health department and in 2018's budget, 
the city council and the mayor moved to develop an office of violence prevention. And so I was absolutely <laughs> determined to become its first director, uh, feeling very much like myself and my colleagues collectively had really helped to build that work and had earned the right to help shape and lead it. So now that you all have this office, uh, you said you've been doing the youth violence prevention work. What makes the office different from that? Uh, and what do you believe the impact can be now that we, you all have this office in place? Yeah, so some of the change was organic and even predated the development of the office. I think in many ways, the work that we're doing now forced the city to recognize the need for an office. Uh, which was bringing in work that wasn't just youth specific, things like the group violence intervention, our hospital-based work, uh, now uh, a cure violence replication. And you know, with great support from Cities United, I think what we're really focused on is trying to do this two-pronged approach of having services that are upfront in the moment that sometimes have to look at our justice system and our law enforcement partnerships to bring about community safety, but then also how are we looking at policy work and innovation on the ground to change the game long term and do that systems change work. And so we are still very much under construction, even though we've existed since 2019. Um, as many folks are fully aware, the pandemic of COVID and the pandemic of racism that led to the lynching of George Floyd uh, leave us reeling with uh, a lot of things that we're still trying to figure out. But we believe that in the long haul, the balance of public safety requires uh, this kind of work being anchored in the city. Yeah, thank you. And I, I want to recognize that you mentioned the murder of George Floyd. Uh, and, and we know the city just did a settlement uh, and that there's a, the, in the process of uh, picking a jury for the trial for the officer who's on trial for the murder of George Floyd. Uh, can you talk a little bit about how the loss of Mr. Floyd uh, and uh, demands to reimagine public safety, how has that impacted your work over the last little while? Immensely. Our work feels uh, completely, not different, but um, completely consumed by the life and legacy of Mr. Floyd, which is not Mr. Floyd, which is not a bad thing. Um, he is and was a, a living and then not living example of why this work is so deeply needed and important. Um, as many people know, you know, like they do so often, his criminal history and other things have been drug out into the public view. But the reality is he was a black man in America and uh, a mother's child, a father to children, a brother, an uncle, a cousin whose life mattered. And um, we have the exceptional honor of trying to change the public safety system in Minneapolis so that situations like the death and murder of George Floyd don't happen again, um, and that we are providing those upstream services and systems change work to really bring about an awakening. I mean, what we saw uh, after the murder of George Floyd was really a social justice revolution. We are living in Minneapolis in really different times. And I believe that's true across the country, although I haven't got to go anywhere because of COVID to see it for myself. Um, and so, you know, we recognize that we're at the epicenter of that change and our city council and our mayor have made commitments to reimagining public safety. And although we tried deeply to play in the beginning sort of an obscure role, because we felt like, one, this is this is big work and our elected officials need to be out front and center on this and driving it forward. Uh, what I as a director and my staff had to recognize is that we bring a technical set of skills that they are fortunate to have. And it would be a mistake for us to sit back and not bring those skills to bear uh, on this process. So we are leading the transforming community safety work. Uh, my colleague, Jen White, is the project manager there. She left the mayor's office to come and help hold us down and uh, really bring that work to fruition. So we're excited about recommendations that we will hopefully be making to the mayor and the city council about how we can reimagine public safety in Minneapolis in the early summer. Yeah, that's a lot of work to your point. It's not it's not a small task. And I'm thankful that cities have well, Minneapolis, let me talk about Minneapolis, have folks like you and your team who understand community, but also understand how city government works, right? That's a that's a unique skill set uh to have. And, and for folks who do this work, I think it's a it's a it's a, it can be tiresome at times to live in both of those lanes and try to bring them together and bridge those gaps. Uh, what do you wish folks really knew about your day-to-day -day or your work, right? What do you want folks to understand about being in this position as a director of violence prevention and seeing public safety the way that you do? 
what what do you want folks to know about the work? Yeah, I mean, there's great dichotomy in the way that we have to move in these spaces, right? Because we are too government for community some days and we are too community for government. And so it is a unique position to be in. And these offices and this kind of work, although some have existed for a while, I mean, we look at the model in like Richmond and places where it's been going on for over a decade, but it's still new when you think about the institutional government, right? The idea that public safety is not just law enforcement when we're talking about, you know, crime and violence, but that there are other ways that we need to be thinking about interrupting those cycles. Sometimes it's a hard sell, right? I mean, when we think about it from a very practical place, we know that people who have a safe place to live, know where their next meal is coming from, have access to education that like, they're usually doing all right. right. And that people, when they're struggling with those things, that's when they're struggling with a lot of other things that bring them to places where violence seems practical and reasonable and like a tool that could solve some of their problems. And that's really the way we're thinking about our work. I think as a black woman doing this work, uh, in one, a male-dominated industry, right? Public safety is just very male-driven and historically has been very white-driven. And so being a woman of color, um, the space can be really tough. And, and quite honestly, I mean, I have uh, you know another Black female manager in my office and um, we recognize that sometimes uh, we are more than either side can handle. Um, you know, we bring, we, but, but we bring an energy, right? I mean, because we are the mothers of black children, we are the sisters and partners to black men. And so, um, we're here for professional and personal reasons. And I think that that can, um, feel overwhelming, uh, to, to the folks who, cause I'm going to do the work regardless, right? Like whether I'm in this role or not, this is my work to, to do whatever position I'm in. And so I think that that is a different thing than someone who puts on a uniform or a work badge or a, or a job, right? So that's not, it's not specific to just our partners in law enforcement, but really is about government work in general and whether we live in a, you know, Minneapolis zip code or not, Minneapolis is our community. And so we have to live, work, and walk in that community all the time. And that has to show up in ways that are more important than our government titles. And that can be the challenge, I think, in this work. Yeah, I agree. I, I think that that's very well uh, said. And I think, you know, understanding that Black women have a unique role in this work and, and, and lead this work in lots of places, whether they're in the front, you know, wherever their role is, they're still always leading the work. And how do you recognize that? And how do you be able to bring your fullness to this work? Because that's what it's going to take to get it done. Uh, as you uh, think about your day to day and you think about the work uh, and you, you know, you said you've been at this for a while. This would be your life's work, whether you're at the mayor or you're in this position or not. Uh, if you get your work right, what would look different? What's going to be different if you get your work right? You know, as a mother and as, you know, I can hear my nephew in the background who's here with me today of, of Black boys, their future would look different, right? Like if we get this work right, their future in Minneapolis looks and feels different. Um, and that, you know, is on a, a much bigger scale than just the two or three that I'm talking about. But I think, you know, we, I know you, and we've, we've been borrowing the language of building happy, healthy, and hopeful communities is really important to us. And right now we know there's a lot of despair. And so if we can begin to build hope in community where people feel like they've got a shot, I think we've got a lot of people in our communities who are deeply impacted by violence and there it's easy to take the bait on violence when you feel like I'm going down anyways. And so for us, it is about in real time trying to show them living, breathing examples of change. That's why so many of the contractors that we work with are people who have lived experience in the system and have come out the other side in spite of its toxicity um, in good places and dealing with their trauma, but also doing the work. Um, and why it is so important for our office to inspire with black and brown leadership um, that, you know, could be seen at a local baseball game or at the grocery store, as well as in a blazer uh, doing a press conference, right? Cause that is hope inspiring, right? Um, but in the real sense and essence of the work, work, I think it is about the systems change work. The in the moment work is important because it stabilizes things in the moment to a certain degree. 
But if we can get our city to see the value in police not being the first, second, or third response, and you know, we're a public health driven initiative. So as people are learning quickly because of COVID, you know, we recognize that sometimes quarantining is the best way to keep people safe from themselves and to invest in public safety. But quarantining without treatment sometimes exacerbates symptoms. Right. And that's what our current system is doing. We incarcerate people, but we're not doing the corrections piece, right? We're not getting people on a different trajectory. And so I think both for our office and offices across the country, that piece around treatment um, and treatment in the various ways that will show up has to be the next frontier. Yeah, I think, you know, that, that that piece right there, that treatment, that healing, that dealing with the trauma, all of those things is things that we've not done before. And we've got to get better, not only in Minneapolis, but across this country, if we truly want to create safe, healthy and hopeful communities. Right. So I really do appreciate that. Uh, that lens and the, and the way you framed it is very helpful and hopefully helpful to folks as they listen in. Uh, you talked a lot about what gives others hope, right? Thinking about giving folks hope. As you do your day-to-day -day work, right? What gives you hope? Where do you find hope? Uh, what keeps you going? Well, the resiliency in the community of Minneapolis is inspiring every day, right? Um, we are at the epicenter of a place that nobody wants to be and people are still showing up, right? Um, I am inspired by that daily. I'm inspired by my one-year-old grandson, right? Like I get to um, hopefully make a world that is better for him. And, um, you know, by my ancestors, right? Like we are built for a time such as these. And so even though it gets weary and tiresome, I think that um, we have a debt to repay. And that is, um, insurmountable pressure, but also real motivation. Yeah, love that. Yeah, one-year-old grandson is wild, isn't it? Yeah, it is crazy. <laughs> <laughs> but that's, yeah, that's, that, that's part of this whole journey to your point, right? We lean on our ancestors, but we also look who's coming behind us to make sure that we're doing our part, because we know our people did our part to make it better for us, right? So how do you continue to push that? So I love that that visual of the ancestors and then the, the little ones coming behind and what we do for that. Uh, really do appreciate your time today, Sasha, and uh, all the hard work that you do, not only in Minneapolis, but to support the work across the country. Because uh, we know we can't get this done alone, right? So we know we got to call in on our network. Uh, any calls to actions or things you want to share with the folks before you go? You know, just continue to lift Minneapolis up. We are coming into the season of the one year anniversary of Mr. Floyd's murder. And we know that our community is gonna be re-traumatized by both that and the trial. So when you get a moment, think of us, uh, both in solidarity, but in real um, support, right? Uh, we need good energy, prayer, judo, voodoo, you know, whatever you want to call it, send it our way as long as it's positive and healing because it is a somber time in our city. And um, this is not, what we're in right now is not what any city wants to be remembered for. And we hope that what we get on the other side will be the way that we are remembered. And so um, we are pushing for that positive change and remember that when you think of us. Good to have Jonathan uh, from Denver joining us. Uh, we're going to have Jonathan tell us a little bit about who he is and what he does. So Jonathan, can you just give us who you are and what you do? Yeah, man, um, Jonathan McMillan. And, you know, people ask me what I do and I, it's it's always a difficult question to answer because I wear a lot of different hats. Uh, but first and foremost, man, I'm a, I'm a father, I'm a husband. Uh, that is my number one job. I got three beautiful children. Um, a wife that tolerates me uh, every day and loves me most days. Uh, that's who I answer to. But then uh, I'm also a black man in uh, who is a former, who formerly incarcerated black man, former gang member, um, activist, and uh, a critical thinker, which, you know, I, I say critical thinker because my ability to look at situations and come up with um, or work towards solutions has led to my most recent uh, paid position working for the city and county of Denver as as their director of youth violence prevention. I love that. No, and I appreciate you starting with who you are personally 
and, and your people and not what you do on a day to day. So talk a little bit about, you know, you just talked about your new role in Denver. Uh, how did you end up in this current role? Uh, what is it? So uh, I ended up in the current role. Uh, as I mentioned, it's, it's I think you knew this. Uh, in December, I, I celebrated my 20th anniversary of being released from Colorado Department of Corrections. And I, I got, uh, you know, I ended up in prison basically because I had, I, I, I believed in the narrative about young black men when I was growing up that we were a part of an endangered species. And when I got into prison, I recognized that <laughs> that language um, as it was fed to me and hundreds of thousands of other black men right. uh, directly led to my current situation and others where we we felt as though um, it was just natural to end up in prison or dead. And uh, because I had I had that epiphany, I've, I've worked the last 20 years of really rewriting that narrative um, and, and also dismantling the systems and disrupting the systems that contribute to how that, that process is executed. Um, so I spent a lot of years, I started a business called Be Better Than Average, which was basically uh, a coaching business, mentoring business, working with young people. And I literally went door to door with this uh, spiral notebook to schools and after school programs, asking them to work with, if I could work with their youth. And uh, eventually I came across, started working with some folks who worked for the city. And uh, long story short, uh, I worked my way up into working for the city. First person with a, a uh, felony conviction to uh, working for the Department of Safety doing direct services as a gang intervention specialist. Um, and I, I, I enjoyed that job, but I recognized really uh, pretty soon that the individual work wasn't wasn't wanting to make as big of a difference as I was wanting it to be. Um, eventually, I reached out to a local city council person, uh, asked him if I could work with him on some of his policy and see what he was looking to do. I got connected with the local My Brother's Keeper initiative when our mayor uh, signed on and, and took President Obama's challenge. Uh, I was working behind the scenes around that youth violence prevention, well, the pillars of our MBK and the criminal justice piece. And um, we were in a meeting one day and uh, it had been a really rough, really rough year for me. Uh, I don't even remember what year it was, but at that point I had lost eight clients um whether they were on my direct caseload or these were young men who i knew when i was running an after school program but eight kids uh who i worked with that got killed that year wow and um in this mbk meeting we talk about criminal justice i, I just called it out and said look y'all if we if we're not being intentional about saving these these kids lives then what the hell are we doing here mm -hmm. and um Thankfully, I didn't get thrown out the room. <laughs> uh, and, and the people who were in position to make some things happen um, took my critical critical advice and started being very intentional about some youth violence prevention, well, youth gun violence um, prevention and reduction initiatives. Um, that was probably about three years ago, maybe four years ago. And over that course of time, um, it just grew. Um, thankfully, Cities United, I flew out to uh, Louisville about two years ago, maybe three years ago, uh, learned about the Roadmap Academy, about how to uh, really leverage political will from our, our um, elected officials, the mayor, city council, people who were mayoral appointees. Um, and I was, I was, I was giving them some game that I don't think they expected to come from me. And, you know, I had you in my back pocket or city's not in my back pocket and uh, ended up meeting uh, Leon, uh, Leon Andrews from NLC, from National League of Cities, and was able to kind of connect the dots between what uh, Leo, uh, Leon was saying about uh, 
inequities that are built into the system really resulting in the the work that I was passionate about, which is um, saving young men's lives. And uh, Aaron Brown, uh, our, the, the deputy chief of staff for Mayor Hancock, she got on board and again, long story short, I'm probably too late, but that eventually <laughs> turned into uh, like a 13, 14 month process, which was a youth violence prevention action table. And uh, it was really, really looking at how do we save some lives through a public health approach. And uh, I was adamant about being a part of that process. I think you probably remember, Anthony, I just, I just crashed the party one day and they were having their first meeting. I sat down and uh, interjected that, you know, if we're going to have this public health approach, you need somebody who is not just sitting in, in an office building, but somebody who's out here and knows what it is. And uh, again, thankfully, they didn't kick me out the room and they brought me on as a consultant throughout the whole process of coming up with this really comprehensive youth violence prevention plan. Um, I, I sat on probably every single committee that there was to, to construct and draft that. Uh, and then even helping uh, kind of draft the job description. And when it came time to hire for the position, uh, I think I was, if not the best candidate, well, I'm the only candidate, I, I was the best qualified. So I, I started the position. They, they got some funding for it last year and hired me about a month and a half ago. And I think that's a, that's a great story and narrative because I think at the end of the day, folks need to understand how connected this work is from community work to government to all across, right? Because I think sometimes folks think you can only do it one way, uh, but I think we've got to have folks in all corners doing that work. And I think your work that you've done before helped you even, it's going to help you be even better at what you do now. So I appreciate you sharing that and giving folks that background. Uh, so back in 2019, I believe it was, the Denver Health Department of the county, Denver Health Department actually dropped a report that highlighted that 700 young people in Denver were harmed by gun violence. How has this report impacted your work and how has the city responded to that report? Um, so yeah, it was 2019 that that report came out and I was very thankful that it, it, the, the people at Denver Health um, put that port, report together because it gave it gave a reality to the situation that I knew was was real in in a way that couldn't be denied. Right there was there was um, a lot of young people had contributed to that. A lot of uh, health officials contributed to it. Uh, law enforcement contributed to the, the stats and the numbers that were in that report. And it made it a lot easier for me, me in particular, to walk into a room and show the gravity of what the situation was uh, and not just be anecdotal about it. It was like, you know, numbers lie, or what, what's the word? Uh, men lie, women lie, numbers don't. And, um, People couldn't deny it anymore, and especially the there's a there's a portion of that report that shows just how disproportionate young black men are affected by gun violence. And so um, again, it, it really helped highlight the urgency of the need of the the urgent need of the work of of MBK. It helped underscore the urgency of the of, for the need of the work of a public health approach. Because in that report, it really showed uh, all these social determinants of health, um, where they were low, where where the where the incidents of violence were high, and so using that report, that really was a catalyst for people who would like to put this on the back burner or who were able to put this on the back burner for so long and deprioritize the work. Uh, to say, oh, we can't wait anymore. And and that was the catalyst, um, a part of the catalyst for the Youth Violence Prevention Action Table, which led to this comprehensive plan, which I'm now now in charge of implementing. No, that's good. Uh, and I think that sometimes you need that push, right? You got to have somebody put the data in front of you and the numbers in front of you to really make you understand that 
you gotta move, right? We've been holding for too long, but now we gotta move. So I appreciate Absolutely. that. And 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 I, and it feels like, and I don't know, I feel like the mayor and other elected officials heard that cry uh, and heard that call and did and moved to action. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, the, a lot of things happened in, in 2019. Uh, the, the the report, of course, uh, but then a few months after the report, there were several more young people get who got killed here in Denver as a result of gun violence. And between uh, the report coming out and, and again, just laying out in black and white what the, the stark reality was and the outcry that was coming from parents, um, these young people's, the peers of the young people who were, who were getting killed, the uh, teachers and people like myself who are uh, on the ground in the grime every day. Uh, I, I, I believe Mayor Hancock really felt the time there there was no better time than than right then and then I, don't, I don't want to say that to say that he didn't wasn't aware of it or uh it wasn't one of his priorities before but there was just so much happening around that time that it just it couldn't have been ignored Uh, his death made national news because he was killed the day after Christmas at a shopping mall just about a half a mile away from my house. And that was that that was just one of those things like you, you, you couldn't believe that a young man in the mall day after Christmas with his family could be killed in the middle of a shopping mall. If we don't do something now, then it's it's never going to get better. And um, you know, it, it, for whatever reasons, um, a lot of people just got activated and mobilized. So I'm, I'm grateful. I mean, obviously, I'm not grateful for losing young Nate, but uh, I'm grateful that people are are inspired to, to do more now. Yeah, and I think that's part of this work, right? The Nates, the Briannas, the Dave McAtee, the George Floyd, to inspire us to do what's right. Uh, we should not have to lose their lives before we move, but they do inspire and spark change. Uh, and how we hold true to that is important, right? So I think that's I think that's key. Uh, and I know as you do your work that you keep Nate in mind and you keep others in mind that you have worked with. Uh, if you get this work right, what will be different? Boy, um, if I get this work right, I mean, the, 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 the easy answer is that there'll be fewer, fewer young people who are dying in my communities and in, in throughout the state and the nation, right? Mm -hmm. But I would say the more difficult task is if I do this wrong, that Jonathan, um, that people will feel a lot more hope. Just, yeah, period. A lot more hope. And, and when people feel hope, I, my, my hope is that they'll be, again, mobilized to contribute more to the to the solutions. And that's across the spectrum. That's the parents, the neighbors, the teachers, the social workers, the government workers, the elected officials, uh, law enforcement will just realize that everybody has a role to play um, that isn't law enforcement, criminal justice heavy and say, how can I make the world that these young people will grow up in uh, a, a better, safer place? And look at me as inspiration to say, okay, um, like this brother's laid the foundation. He he's he's lit the beacon. Let me follow that. Yeah. 
So you want to give folks hope uh, through your work. What gives you hope and what keeps you going? Oh boy. Um, I, I'll be honest with you. <laughs> I, uh, when, when I, I, I had thought about this, I had to re really look at what the difference between faith and hope was. Mm. Um, because I have faith, I have faith in what I'm doing. And in that I, I move with confidence. What gives me hope though, is the young people who I get to work with. So throughout this process, I mean, and this has always been who I am, uh, but more specifically through this process over the last year, I have really been in, enabled and empowered to uh, start to develop a, a, a pipeline of young leaders who are really motivated to be part of the solution. And I get to meet with them at least once a week, oftentimes it's three times a week. And it's not even the same group of young people. It's, it's multiple groups. Right. Uh, but I, I get to have conversations with them and hear what their ideas are about a, what's, what's driving the violence and B uh, what they need from the adults in order to start to change the situation. And then C, uh, what can they do about it? Like they're they're just fired up about, all right. Like it's we've moved past the protests and the rallies and and all of that. Uh, Jonathan, can you send me policy on how mental health plays a role in 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 how uh, youth violence? Can you send me policy, the, the police department's policy on use of force? And they want to study this stuff so that they can walk into conversations uh, and, and speak from an educated stance and be able to stand up for themselves when, as we know, sometimes the adults who feel as though the number of years they put on this earth gives them any sort of credibility or influence or the letters behind their names mean something. We got young people who are the subject matter experts because they want to be and they want to contribute to a better world. So that that gives me hope all the time, man. Yeah, and no, that's dope. That's what Glenn Miller always, uh, Glenn Martin always says: those closest to the problem are closest to the solution, right? So uh, Glenn Martin, uh, brother out of New York, and I think that's right on point, man. And I appreciate that the, I, the difference between faith and hope, right? We all. I walk in faith and, and and believe, right? But there's moments when you need that hope to continue that believing and stuff like that, man. So we really do uh, appreciate your time today. I appreciate your leadership, not only in Denver, but across the country, because uh, this work is very important. Uh, so I really just want to thank you for taking time and making time to be on the Journey Continue podcast uh, for this month. Uh, anything else you want to say to the people before you go? Um. Two quick things. First is, man, I'm just so appreciative of Cities United, man. Um, that Roadmap Academy, although it was only, it was a, less than a week, uh, it was like a masterclass. And it just put me up on so much game about how to begin to navigate my role in the community and even step up into community leadership even better because I was able to literally lead people down down the right road right right and and and, and give them game on how to do things but it also um you know it, it helped me lead those who are elected officials and, and government workers so that that piece and then um the last thing I want to say is a quote that I wrote down and it's about that hope and it's about mm -hmm. just there's going to be rough days the the journey there is nothing none of this is going to be an overnight fix um i truly believe that i'm laying the foundation for whoever's to come behind me Absolutely. and the quote says uh everything that is worth transfiguring that is to be made more beautiful or to elevate the things that make life worth living is premised on one thing a long obedience in the same direction. 
Mm. So I, I I look at that and just know that the long days, the the frustrating meetings, the the times that I may lose another young person, I have to stay obedient and on the same path in the right direction. And I hope that gives a little bit of hope to whoever's listening to this, man. Now I appreciate it, bro. We'll leave it at that. So thank you, Jonathan, for making time. Thank you for all your work. And we'll be checking in soon, bro. All right. Thanks, Anthony. I appreciate you, man. Peace, man. Peace out. All right, folks. Uh, We are now joined by Monique Williams, who's out of uh, Office for Safe and Healthy Neighborhoods in Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, Excited to have this conversation with Monique uh, during this series when we've been talking to a number of our city leads from across the country. Uh, So, Monique, thank you for joining us and thank you for taking time to uh, spend time on our podcast. Can you tell us and and our network a little bit about who you are and what you do? Sure. So Monique Williams and I am um, the director for the Mayor's Office for Safe and Healthy Neighborhoods here in Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, I'm new to this role, not necessarily new to violence prevention work, but um, in this role for the last six months. And so helping to develop the strategic plan for uh, creating safe and healthier neighborhoods in in our community at a city level. Um, prior to this, I was at the University of Louisville within the School of Public Health and Information Sciences, um, and I'm still attached to the School of Public Health. And so I have a an instructor position within the school still as well, uh, attached to the research that I was doing from my prior role as director of our National Center of Excellence in Youth Violence Prevention Research. And within that work, you know, we were really looking to elevate conversations around community and policy level interventions and prevention mechanisms for youth violence prevention. Uh, Because as I'm sure you know, you know, we have researched to death over the last 20, 30 years, um, kind of the individual level risk factors for violence. But we don't have, in research form at least, uh, a robust understanding of the impact of some more societal level factors and how that influences the individual level behavior. Um, and so from that position, I was recruited over here to bring some of that research into um, the city space for practice. Nice. Thank you for that background and for that uh, and giving a clear understanding because the, of the research and, and why we need to shift and how we need to shift our focus. Uh, so you're new to this office, uh, you're new to this role in the city. What made you say yes to that? What What was it about this role at this time that says I'm ready to shift and, and go into doing this work mm-hmm. inside the city government? So. Yeah, I don't think there was any formal thought <laughs> or plan, you know, it was the the ask was put out there and it it seemed like a fluid next step, right? And so in my previous position, there was obviously nowhere else to, to go within it. You know, I was the director of the center for the last five years. Um, but with all of what was coming out of the research and wanting to put into practice the things that we were learning in that intervention, Uh, what better way to put something into practice than go into a space where, you know, the intent is to implement things that would help to reduce violence. And because of the kinds of things that we focused on um, in the center, you know, the very kind of structural level things and looking at um, how systems and structures impact the violence that we see in some of our marginalized communities, Um, it's not enough sometimes to just be talking about what you know the issues are. And we know that there are some very real issues within the government institutions as it pertains to how those institutions impact marginalized African-American communities. And so, you know, just don't kind of talk about or talk at the system like it's an opportunity to get within it to hopefully change some things from within. Nice, nice. And you stepped into this role uh, during a time in Louisville when there's a, 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 a heavy push for uh, racial equity and justice uh, and police reform uh, with the loss of Breonna Taylor, the murder of Breonna Taylor. So there's been 
uh, year-long pro uh, protest and, and, and uproar and, and folks demanding justice, and you stepped into a role that's kind of contagious uh, and, and plays a role in this. Uh, how has that impacted your work and, and, and how has it guided your work uh, as you stepped into this new role the last six months? So, let's see. Breonna Taylor's case was significant in a lot of, for a lot of reasons, because it speaks to what we're trying to say <laughs> in violence prevention work. Like violence, how we define violence determines how we go about addressing the issue, right? And so, um, we talk a lot about, you know, one person harming another person, but normally from a community perspective, but we don't really talk about when systems and institutions harm people um, and that type of violence and what that does to community, because what has that done to us as a community to have um, this instance of injustice be right here in our, in our city and, and for our city to be in such an uproar since, which has caused, you know, an uptick in violence that we see. And so where you have people who are being intentional about the injustice and really wanting to see change, you also have people who are utilizing the opportunity of the chaos, so to speak, mm -hmm. um, to take advantage of being able to do some things that are criminalistic, you know? Um, and a lot of the attention and diversion is kind of being geared towards other things. And so you have so many fires happening at once. Um, but for me, this just speaks to the fact that we have to cover the whole spectrum of violence. And so I like to define violence in terms of, I think it's the World Health Organization's definition. And they say that violence is the intentional use of physical force or power threatened or actual against oneself, another person, or against a group or community that either results in or has a high likelihood of resulting in injury, death, psychological harm, maldevelopment, or deprivation. And so we pay a lot of attention to the intentional use of physical force that causes these things, but we don't pay a lot of attention to the intentional use of power threatened or actual that cause harm to people. And so when we're talking about addressing violence, from my perspective, and I always say we need to address violence from the root to its fruit. And so some of, what are some of the root causes of violence, which are rooted in what I call structural violence, which essentially in the most basic definition is um, any system or institution that's keeping individuals from me meeting their basic needs. Mm -hmm. um, and that being a facilitator of the interpersonal violence that we see. And so structural violence would be something like institutional racism right. and how that then produces violence. And what we saw with Rihanna Taylor was an instance of structural violence. So while we have to focus on the interpersonal stuff that we're seeing in our city, whether that's homicides or, um, you know, violent crime that's happening in the community, domestic violence, all of those things, they're important and we need intervention. But we also need intervention on this other end with dealing with structural violence. And so how do we develop a strategy that gets at the holistic picture of all of what needs to be addressed within the frame of what violence is? And as a city say that we are intolerant of all types of violence, which means we're gonna develop a plan that gets at all of the types of violence. And so that's what I'm wanting us to focus on, um, but that's a tougher conversation to have. <laughs> Yeah, it's always a long road ahead, right? Folks can get, or at least want to get the interpersonal, the day-to-day, -day, but never really want to talk about the root, never really want to talk about the system of uh, violence that happens. Because uh, uh, then folks got to start looking at themselves, right? So how do you have that conversation? And how do you get folks to shift uh, and move differently, right? So when you do your work on the day-to-day, and I know folks have all kinds of questions about what it is, what you do, why you do it. What do you really wish folks knew about your work? I wish folks knew that, you know, it's difficult work, but I, I'm more than that, I wish folks could understand just how multifaceted violence is. And so people talk about 
you know, it being a systemic issue from the perspective that there are, you know, systems in place that create conditions for violence to be more pervasive in certain spaces, which is an actual thing. Mm -hmm. But there are multiple systems that are at play at differing levels that are involved in violent outcomes. And so a lot of times we want to just focus on the perpetrator and the victim. But there are, there's another system at play, right? There are relationships with people, another set of systems at play when you talk about the institutions that they navigate. And so the school system and what role it plays, um, the healthcare system and what role it plays, community spaces, the existence of them or the absence of them, the role that that plays, government, all of these things are at work and at play all at the same time. And so there has to be a coordinated effort that is inclusive of all of these systems. Right. And so when you start having that conversation and people who have the ability to make decisions about things, if they don't necessarily understand like how education is related to the outcome of violence or how something like the history of redlining in Louisville is directly connected to violence with the creation of concentrated poverty and the deprivation of resources in particular communities, which increase the likelihood of violence. And so when you want to have those kind of upstream conversations that get away from people seeing, but this person over here is harming somebody. And so we must need law enforcement, you know, to, to do something about it. We've been missing opportunity for years with the way that we've just traditionally done public safety. Right. Um, and so I would love for people to understand just how reactionary law enforcement is and it has its place and it's necessary, but the way that we have kind of mobilized law enforcement has been more detrimental than helpful, which is why we can still see a lot of what we're seeing. Um, and so I just wish people could really more so understand and kind of take on the understanding of violence in relation to the social ecology, violence in relation to social determinants of health, and really violence as a public health issue because it is. Right. Yeah, that's a lot, right? And I think that's the, I think because uh, folks have a clear definition in their head of what public safety is, it's hard to move. Because to your point, that's what we relied on for so many centuries, right? This is what public safety is. Uh, and we put this this force in place that then enforces that and it's, it has not been good. Uh, so I really do appreciate you running through that and giving folks that and, and, and trying to figure out, you know, as you think through that, Monique and others, how do you break that down for folks in a way that's manageable and that I can take it in and get uh, has COVID and, and the response to COVID been helpful in helping people see how this could be, the public health approach can be a, 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 uh, used to address violence? So I felt like COVID was the perfect opportunity for people to see just how much of a public health issue violence is. When you close down the schools and you close down, you know, the community spaces for young people, you the evident the pandemic itself causing an economic crisis like you have multiple crises converging at the same time and so you see all of these fires setting like right now you can't even look at a map and say you know here's a hot spot here here's a hot spot here like it's just red dots everywhere right now um and so you really do have people that are doing what they have to do to survive and when you create spaces that are survival mode. And when you decrease protective factors and increase risk factors, you're going to see violence. And so in some of our communities where violence was already pervasive, this on top of that has only caused like a volcano to erupt, right? And so it's like a clear picture of, oh, like it's not just a those people problem, like when you create a certain space or a certain atmosphere or a certain set of, of conditions, violence is more likely to happen, period. I don't necessarily know, again, how many people make the connection, 
but we can only continue to like try to have the conversation to explain how all of these things are connected. No, I think that's right. And I think that's why we got to continue to have, you know, multiple people saying how it's connected. And I think, you know, they expect some people, but we need multiple people and different allies and uh, and folks in, in the work helping us think through this. Uh, as you think about your work and you think about uh, the work that you've done over the years uh, and now what you're doing, if we get this work right, or if you get your work right, uh, what will be different? Oh, <laughs> if, if we get this work right, maybe my job would be different. <laughs> maybe <laughs> I don't have a job, you know? Uh, maybe I don't have this job, you know? Um, and that would be okay with me because that means that we have somehow reached a point of getting equity right. And so when you think about violence prevention from a public health perspective, and we talk about kind of the, the tiered prevention, where there's primary prevention, secondary prevention, and tertiary prevention, we're having to live kind of in that tertiary pre prevention space because all of the conditions are there and we're having to respond to individuals who are already, you know, high risk, so to speak, um, and who have already had all of this trauma. And so when you're having to rehabilitate, intervene, and it takes a long time, right, at that individual personal level. And it takes a whole lot of work and a whole lot of resources to rehabilitate versus if we could get primary prevention correct. And for me, primary prevention is just equity. Right. <laughs> like ensuring that people have their, their basic needs met, people have the things that, um, that are needed for healthy development and healthy living and, and they have work and they have places to, you know, play and all of the things, are, all of the neighborhoods look the same, essentially. Um, I think if, yeah, the, I mean, for me to do this work right, then there is equity in, in community neighborhoods. No, love that. And, you know, there's equity and justice and making sure that folks have what they need is right on point. And again, most of this is about how do we work ourselves out of this job, right? So we can go do something else that is not this, because if we keep doing this, this means we're still losing way too many people, right? And, and, and we've not shifted as a country or as a community. Uh, as you continue to do this work, right? And again, you know, with the day-to-day uh, numbers and, and just the work itself that's heavy and hard. What keeps you hope throughout the through your days, through your weeks? What keeps you going? What gives you hope? What gives me hope? <laughs> Jesus, period, <laughs> literally. <laughs> um, like that is that's my anchor, right? Like people have self care. My self care is prayer. My self care is my relationship with Christ and knowing that the work that I'm doing is conducive to what he would like to see, which is people who have been oppressed not be oppressed anymore. You know, people who don't have having opportunity. Um, and so because I'm, I'm so attached to wanting to ensure that I'm living out, you know, my purpose and, and what he put me here to do, I feel like this is a part of it. And so no matter how hard it gets, he's always gonna give me what I need to be successful in this work because he put me in this work. Um, and so that gives me confidence and it gives me like a supernatural strength sometimes to be able to do some things that I may not otherwise be able to do. Well, no, that's, that's real. I appreciate that. Uh, anything you need the folks to know before we go? Um, <laughs> can't think of anything specific that I haven't said other than everybody has a role. <laughs> and everybody has a part to play, even if you aren't somebody that is directly impacted by, you know, gun violence or, you know, crime in the community that you exist in. Um, violence is indirectly affecting you even still. Um, cities fare better, countries fare better when there are, uh, when they are equitable. Mm -hmm. And so find ways to get involved in this work to help mobilize us to a place of being able to um, put me out of a job. <laughs> Appreciate that. Thank you for taking the time. Thank you for uh, joining us and thank you for doing the work. This is hard work uh, and we need folks who 
understand it, who get it and can bring folks to the table. So thank you for showing up every day for that. Uh, and we will keep you in our prayers as we go through our work uh, uh, and continue to put you uh, so you can keep your hope uh, as you move through this work. So we look forward to seeing you soon. Thank you, Monique. Thank you. All right. Thanks. Thank you for joining us for this episode of The Journey Continues. I want to give a special thank you to our guests for joining us and sharing their wisdom and their knowledge. Join us every month as we elevate new voices, strategies, and resources to help us reimagine public safety and move us closer to our vision to create safe, healthy, and hopeful communities for all young Black men and boys and their families. I want to give a special shout out to our sponsor, Levi Strauss & Company. As a global iconic leader, Levi Strauss & Company knows that what they do and say matter. That's why they have pledged to support gun violence prevention efforts by providing grants to nonprofits who are working to end gun violence across the country. By elevating the stories of grassroots organizations who are successfully implementing violence prevention strategies in their communities and funding nonprofits who use digital tools and platforms to empower and lift up the voices of youth activists, Levi's believe that we can counter the gun violence epidemic in this country and make communities around this nation safer. To learn more about their goals, please visit their website at levistrauss.com. That's L-E-V-I-S-T-R-A-U-S-S dot com. We look forward to continuing this journey with you. Peace. See you next month.